God's word says, And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as, as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Lord, you are alive. Your word is living and active. Lord, we don't come here to hear the thoughts of a man. We want to hear you speak so that we might know your voice, that we might follow as your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Say in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever answered the question, if you could share a meal with any four people from any time in history, with whom would you eat? You know, often that question really reveals a lot about you because who you want to be with says what you value and love. Imagine, though, that if the situation was changed and it wasn't just a meal, you were asked, who would you like to shadow, to follow for a whole day, get to see what their life is like? Well, who would you want to follow? What would you most want to see about their life? Well, last week, we looked at a day when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth. He'd been a popular teacher in the surrounding region, and so there was much excitement, enthusiasm, as the local carpenter-turned-preacher comes home. And as we looked at, Jesus read and taught from portions of Isaiah 61. And at first, everyone spoke well of him. You know, Isaiah 61 told of the year of Jubilee and the Messiah who would come and restore the world from the curse of sin. As we saw then, sin's curse is not merely that we do bad things, but rather every part of the universe is now corrupted. We have sickness. We have injustice. We have oppression. We have suffering and death. And Jesus declared that he had come to remove all those curses of sin. And the people in Nazareth, they rejoiced. This is wonderful. But then a problem arose. Jesus realized they didn't just want, they demanded a sign. And Jesus told them, I'm not going to give you a sign. And for you and for many, well, what? 
How can Jesus come and make these claims to be the Messiah, to come remove the curse of all sin and not give any evidence to back it up? Well, it wasn't that he wasn't going to give evidence. We'll see evidence this morning, and there's evidence before this. It said Jesus is not a genie. You don't get to just say, this is what I want, and poof, he does it for you. And so Jesus would not give a sign, and he warned them, look, if you won't believe what you've heard and even seen today, this good news will be spread to other areas. And they responded in anger and sought to kill him. However, Jesus could not have his life taken from him. He could only give it freely. And since his hour had not come, he passed through them. But now we come and we see another 24 hours in the life of Jesus. If you want to know, well, I want to shadow Jesus for 24 hours, what would it look like? Well, we would see that this morning. We would see that that day would be full of evidence that the king has come. We'll see that in three ways, in verses 31 through 37. And if you have a bulletin, this is on the back. We'll see that the king has come because he's removing the demonic from the kingdom. Then in verses 38 and 39, there's healing the sick in the kingdom. And lastly, in verses 40 through 44, there's the proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So Jesus was in Nazareth, but then in verse 31, we see he goes down to Capernaum. It was on the Sea of Galilee, so it was below sea level. So he went down, and there he continues his custom of teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. But unlike their rabbis who would teach, where they would read a passage and then say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Shimei says this, Jesus says, thus saith the Lord. He speaks with authority. And, you know, it's an interesting question to ponder. Had this man with the demon been coming every Sunday? And as long as people just pontificate on this man and that man, nothing happens. But now that thus saith the Lord says, he responds because this demon cries out and he says, leave us alone. What are you wanting to do with us, Jesus? Are you going to destroy us? I know you're the Holy One of God. You know, the demon is nervously confessing who Jesus is and what he knows Jesus came to do and will do. Now, remember where we just were, because this demonic confession really stands in stark contrast to the people of Nazareth. You know, here we realize the people in Nazareth, they wanted to destroy Jesus. But this demon realizes that Jesus is the judge before whom we will all be delivered or destroyed. He sees with clarity what they failed and didn't want to see. Or even here in Capernaum. All they've said, well, Jesus is a man with great authority. But the demon realized he's not just a man who teaches with authority. He is all authority. He is the ultimate authority. And so he asked Jesus what Jesus will do to them. You know, he knows that Jesus will one day conquer and destroy them. And he wants to know is that time now here? And what does Jesus do? He responds by rebuking the demon. He rebukes the demon by commanding it to be silent and come out of the man. And so the demon throws the man down in their midst and comes out. However, in submission to Jesus, he doesn't harm him. Now I'm always struck by the fact of how different these accounts are from how Hollywood would portray them. You know, from time to time, Hollywood will take a book and they'll turn it into a movie. But often they'll say, well, the plot's just a little too boring or the scene doesn't have enough action. So they will spice it up or change a little so there's more drama or so they think. 
And here, notice some things that are not done. Jesus is not in a battle of wills against the demon. Jesus doesn't do an incantation. He doesn't put on a magic hat. He doesn't use a wand. He doesn't do anything that hints in any way of magic or sorcery. There's no potion. There's no rituals. And Jesus isn't fighting the demon so that as the demon leaves, he's trying to hurt the man and Jesus is trying to fight the demon and save the man. Not at all. Jesus speaks and the demon immediately in complete submission obeys. He realizes that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Jesus is showing just what John the Baptist said, that he is the stronger one who will come. And he's come and he's showing his strength over the demons and the reports start to spread. Now, for many in our culture, maybe you, definitely some of your coworkers and friends, this story is just one more evidence to add to the fact that Christianity and the Bible, it's just a story. I mean, demons? Like, come on, is this really real? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And 80 years later, his words still ring true. We have rational skeptics who deny the existence of anything unless it can be seen, felt, touched, and dissected in a laboratory. For it to be true, it must be observable, repeatable, and verifiable. Now, if we were only talking about physical objects, then that would be very good criteria in which we should use. However, in the supernatural realm, there is no physical test one can do to prove or disprove the reality of the supernatural. Rather, you have to have the test of history and the test of genuine experience that must be applied. If I can slightly twist a famous quote by G.K. Chesterton, the believers in demons accept them rightly or wrongly because they have evidence for them, historical evidence. The disbelievers in demons deny them rightly or wrongly because they have a doctrine against them. And this isn't just rational skeptics. Any, even many Christians would deny the reality of demons, spiritual forces, ghosts, whatever you want to call them. You know, they might even tell the children, oh, those don't exist. Well, they do. You know, this might be a word semantic, but ghosts, spiritual beings, spirit powers, whatever, they exist. They're real, and here Jesus shows his power over them. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about Casper. We're not talking about a little guy in red tights who's on one shoulder whispering in your ear, and a little guy in a white robe with a harp whispering in your other ear. You know, those are caricatures, mockery, to make us go, ha of course, that's not real. That's not what we're talking about. Satan is an angel of light, and he's going to come in a way so that he does not appear to be demonic. However, while rationalists and even sometimes Christians deny the reality of spiritual beings, many today claim to be spiritual people and they believe in the spiritual world. So they say, but they go to the other extreme Lewis talked about and have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They're constantly trying to tap into spiritual powers and communicate with the dead. I don't know about you, but I remember being in elementary school and being told, if you go do this, this little thing you do, a demon will come out of the mirror. And I was like, whoa. Now, I don't know if you ever heard things like that or been told things like that, but I don't think you should try. I don't think you should play with them. Because spiritual beings, demons, are real. But Christians even err here when we're so overly focused on the demonic that every issue in life becomes something that is demonic that needs to be cast out. Demons are real, but they're not all-powerful, nor are they the only source of temptation. I don't think the demons need much help in tempting me to sin. I'll let you analyze that in your own life. But sometimes I don't need to blame a demon. I need to blame my own desires. Nothing needs to be cast out but my own sinful flesh. So rather than denying their existence or being excessively interested in them, we should realize Jesus' superiority over and conquering of the demonic world. You know, over and over in the Gospels, Jesus clearly, he decisively and easily overcomes the demons. Then at the cross, Jesus conquers sin, death, and the devil. Thus, in 1 John 4, 4, it says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You know, as followers of Christ, we don't need to be immobilized by fear of Satan or demons. But neither should we act as though they're impotent. Rather, we trust in the one who has overcome them. Even here in this story, Jesus exercised the demon and made sure the man had no harm done to him. At time to time, we'll sing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that, one of the verses we sing, The Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. Now what is that little word? He's talking about the word of God incarnate. He's talking about how Jesus will fell the devil. That's what we're singing about. And here, Jesus demonstrates the reality of his words that he proclaimed in Nazareth last week. You can even look, chapter 4, verse 18, that he came to set at liberty those who are being oppressed. So if we are in Christ, there is no demonic power, not even the devil, who can overcome us. So we can take comfort. We can take strength and courage that though we face a mighty foe, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But before moving on though, we need to notice that the demon confessed exactly who Jesus was Hold your finger there and turn over to the book of James. So you'll need to go past Hebrews, big book, if you find that in the New Testament, and get to James. Hold your finger in Luke. James chapter 2, because here in James, the author, James, is wanting to warn them of having a false type of faith. And look in James chapter 2, we'll read 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
You know, that matches what we just saw in Luke chapter 4, and you can flip back there. You know, many well-meaning Christians, in an attempt to get many people saved, which we should desire many people to come to Christ, they have watered down the gospel and reduced it to, if you just agree with these facts, you'll be saved. However, what did we just see? The demons actually agree with. They confess the right facts about God. In fact, they have better theology than any of us, myself included. James 2 is showing us that saving faith is not just a mental agreement with some facts about God, but it's a turn from sin that is evidenced in a life of good works, of joyful obedience. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but as has always been said, that faith is never alone. That faith is seen and revealed by a changed life. And so God's call upon all of us is to believe more than that He just exists. You know, sadly, I've talked to many people who are living lives completely in rebellion to God's Word. And they go, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I pray. I'm okay. Well, the demon believed in God. The demon confesses who Jesus is. You know, the question we have to ask is, do we have more faith than the demons? You know, the demons know, they confess, but they don't joyfully submit and follow. Do you joyfully repent? Is there evidence in your life that you have more faith than the demons? If not, Scripture is warning that that's not the faith that saves. That's just a mental agreement with facts. Well, Jesus does not just call us to faith, though, in some kind of arbitrary, just leap off this cliff. He gives us evidence to build that faith upon. And thus, next, Luke tells us in verses 38 through 39 of the healing of the sick in the kingdom. Look down at verse 38, again, back in Luke chapter 4. Because there... He goes, you can imagine this is the day in the life of Jesus. And after a while, he was human. So what did he need? Food. And Simon goes, hey, why don't you come to my house? And while he's there, he is eating. But he's told that Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a very high fever. But notice what it says in verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Look up again at verse 35. But Jesus rebukes the demon. The exact same word for what Jesus did to the demon, or said to the demon, is what Jesus said to the fever. Or, flip over four chapters to Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 24, Luke chapter 8. Jesus has called His disciples, He's with them, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee at night, and a storm arises, but Jesus is asleep. And then they wake Him up, And notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 24. And when they went and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and they were calm. What does it mean to rebuke something? If you read Merriam-Webster, it means to criticize sharply or reprimand. If you look in the Cambridge Dictionary, it's to criticize someone strongly because you disapprove of what that person has said or done. And you can look up other dictionaries, and the same idea is put across that it's some kind of strong or sharp correction, and normally of a person, 
due to their words or actions. Here, though, Jesus is not only rebuking a demon, he's also rebuking a fever and a storm. Why is Jesus correctly, sorry, sharply correcting fevers and storms? Because this is tying into what we saw last week of what Jesus' mission is. His mission is to restore his kingdom by removing every single effect of sin in this world. You know, before sin entered this world, there were no fevers. There was no death. I have a friend who's a firefighter, not the men here. I'll let them be innocent on this charge. And once his paramedic unit came across an accident had been in some teenagers who were driving recklessly. And one of the boys was really worked up and he, in his anxiety. Am I going to die? Am I going to die? And my friend looked down at me and said, yes, but not today. And though it's humorous, it's true, sadly, that yes, you are going to die. All of us are going to die. Well, why? Because sin entered the world. That's why... We have car accidents and storms and disasters, but Jesus came to reverse it. And so he's rebuking what should not be in his kingdom. There should be no fevers in his kingdoms. There should be no storms. Wind was made by God to cool us and refresh us, not to kill us and destroy us. And not only does Jesus rebuke, but by doing so, he's actually showing himself to be God. I say that because as you look through the Bible, and we'll look at some of the evidence, Rebuking is limited to mainly and only God. The Zechariah 3 2, it calls on God, not a prophet or a man, to rebuke Satan. The Jews during Old Testament times said, Rebuking is not for man, but for God. Isaiah 66 15 tells of what the Messiah will do when he comes. At the end time, it says, He will rebuke with flames of fire. You know, part of the Messiah's end time role is to be rebuking that which is wrong. If you look through the Bible, only twice is rebuking ever given to humans. Once is in Luke 17.3, where we're told if our brother sins, we're go to rebuke them. But notice the difference. When we rebuke someone, there's only the possibility that they might turn. Every time Jesus rebuked, they did turn. The storm ceased. The fever went away. The demon left. The second rebuke of a human in the Bible is when Jesus is on the cross. And on one side, a thief is mocking him, saying, If you're the Son of God, get down. And then on his other side, it says in Luke 23, 40, But the other man rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Again, though, the human rebuke only offers the chance to change. Whereas Jesus' rebuke causes the change. But in general, throughout the Bible, we see only God rebukes. You can look at Jude chapter 9. It says, When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, and if you have questions, that, Keith is really strong on all that stuff, so you should ask him. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. One of the highest angelic beings, an archangel, archangel, angel thank you michael he didn't even rebuke on his own he didn't say i rebuke you he said god rebuke you thus jesus coming in rebuking demons 
and them going out. Rebuking illness and it immediately stopping. Rebuking storms and immediately becoming calm shows that he is God. That he's exercising divine authority. That he's giving evidence for faith. And the people there realized it. Look again at verse 36. And they were all amazed and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power... He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. You know, as a society, we recognize voice-activated commands. You tell Siri, set timer for 10 minutes. Siri sets the timer for 10, 10 minutes. The demons, illness, weather, are voice-activated to God's commands. You know, we are so familiar with these stories that we can just, oh yeah, Jesus cast out a demon. That's what he does. You know, think about what's going on here. Jesus has authority over all things. He speaks, and they immediately respond. You know, we long for that in our life. We tell our siblings or our children or those around us to do something, and we want them to do it right away. And if they don't, we say it a little louder. Say it again. Because we want our words to have power we want voice activated children we want voice activated spouses surprise there's no amens but here we realize we don't have that authority but one came who has that authority that any being he speaks to immediately submits and obeys now christ is showing that he is the lord and king of the universe and again Note that this isn't by magical incantation. This isn't by any kind of waving a magic wand or any kind of sorcery. They listen because they recognize that they are his creation and his subjects who they must obey. And you may have noticed how immediately they obey because Simon's mother tells us in verse 39, mother-in-law immediately rose and began to serve them. And once you've been over illness, takes a couple days to fully regain your strength but here instantaneously she has enough strength to joyfully go serve the one who healed her and so jesus healing again is evidence that the king has come and that he's restoring his kingdom where there will be no sickness or death anymore and seeing jesus come to restore should lead us to want to worship and praise him now, that was the response here of Simon's mother-in-law. For she immediately, after being healed, desired to serve. You know, serving is worship. Now, sadly, as we come across these stories, we have to point out the many frauds and imposters of Jesus' healing that try to be claimed today. Once on a flight, Sarah and I sat next to this woman who was the last woman to be boarded on the plane because she had to be brought in by a wheelchair and then placed in her seat. Then after our flight ended, she had to be the last, except for us who were waiting, to be taken off the plane so she could be lifted out of her seat and put in her wheelchair. I mean, she was barely able to move by herself. However, for a significant portion of the flight, she was, she was recounting to us how this famous Christian pastor had healed her at three different occasions. Well, the first clue that this was not the healing of jesus was that it needed to happen three times 
The second clue that this was not the healing of Jesus was that she still could not move. You know, Jesus' healing was instantaneous. It was clear. It wasn't over something that you can't really be sure was there or not. And it was totally restorative. You know, can God and does God still heal people miraculously today? Yes. And we should pray for that. However, we should realize the stark difference between us praying for something and God acting and a person saying, by my touch, I can heal as Jesus does with little evidence to support that. And as well, we have to know, because many Christians have, I think, twisted these things, that Jesus' healing was not intended to teach us that we should no longer care for our physical bodies in normal physical ways. The Apostle Paul, when his disciple Timothy was having stomach ailments, didn't say, well, you need to have more faith. Or you need to pray some more, Timothy, that that would go away. Both of which could have been good things. But he said, go drink some wine for your stomach. You have a physical issue? Do something physical, because God works through that. God ordinarily works through natural means, which we should use, but at times he breaks in and works through the supernatural. Well, in Jesus' life, we see this supernatural intervention. And lastly, we also see Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, verses 40 to 44. Because you can imagine, following these two miraculous acts, people are running around getting anyone who's sick going, come on, this guy's in town, he can heal you. And so people are bringing in droves, those who are sick and those who are filled with demons. Now notice something about Jesus. He didn't go, no, 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 I don't really want to do this. I was really actually hoping to have some time by myself. He's not a recluse. He's not holding his power to himself. He's not reluctant to heal or care. You've probably known people with positions of authority that when you go to talk to them, you can tell the whole time you're there, they would wish you were somewhere else. And they really want nothing to do to help you. Jesus is not that type of being. He wants to help. And notice he doesn't just help the powerful, the prestigious, the rich. Jesus healed any and all who came to him. And in this, he's casting out demons. And they also, verse 41, are crying out, you're the son of God. But then interestingly, he rebukes them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew He was the Christ. Now, Christ is the title for the Old Testament word Messiah. Jesus Christ is not his first name and last name, but rather Jesus is his name, personal name, and Messiah is a title. And that's often the reverse of how we say someone's name. If you were a doctor, I'd say, hi, Dr. Seuss, title and then name. But... In their culture, they would say, hi, Seuss doctor. So here, they're recognizing that Jesus' personal name is the title. He is the Messiah. The demons realize this. But Jesus knows what the Jews have come to think the Messiah is. The Jews think the Messiah is going to be a military, a political leader who's going to come in and overthrow Rome. So if the Romans start hearing over and over that the Messiah has come, the Romans are going to come and try and get rid of this Messiah. And Jesus doesn't want his mission distracted by the baggage that comes with Messiah. Yes, at one point he will allow even humans to confess him as the Messiah. When Peter does, he praises him. 
But at this point, Jesus does not want his message confused with mere national or political aspirations. Well, we're at the end of the day, Jesus sleeps, but the next day he wakes up and he wants to get away. But the crowd seeks him out. They want it. Hey, we don't want you to go. This is great. You'll heal all our sick people. We won't have any demons in our region anymore. But notice what Jesus says in verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Now the kingdom of God is not necessarily just a physical area. Rather, the kingdom of God is present wherever God's creation joyfully obeys God's rule. You know, God's kingdom is present wherever and whenever God's creation joyfully obeys God's rules. That's what we've seen. What has Jesus the king done? He's rebuked those things that were not submitting to him. That's why he rebuked demons, diseases, disasters, for they were not all living under his rule. They were rebelling. As well, he has to preach the good news. Really, literally, he has to preach the gospel. Now, when we hear the word gospel, we think of a religious term. Oh, okay, that's talking about religion. But for their culture, the word gospel had nothing to do with religion. It had to do with royalty. The term gospel was used to announce the good news that a king was coming. And so Jesus comes saying, he is the good news. That the king has returned to restore the kingdom under his good reign. And this is really one of many areas where Christianity is in stark contrast to all other religions. Because Jesus' message is not about how to lead a good life. Primarily, primarily it's about how he came to restore life. Tim Keller says it this way. He writes, The essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel says this is what has what been is what has been done in history. Christianity, he says, is completely different. It's joyful news. And again, Jesus doing this is fulfilling what we saw last week in Luke chapter 4 because it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. So Jesus must go out and declare the good news that the king has come and that he's restoring his kingdom. He doesn't want to rule over a small geographic area like they want him to in Capernaum. Rather, his kingdom is going to encompass the whole world. And so he must go out and continue to preach. Now notice, Jesus doesn't see this as an optional task. He says, I must, or it is necessary that he does this. You know, unlike the demons who rebelled against God's authority and had to be rebuked, Jesus always lived under the authority of his father. He always fulfilled what he was sent to do. And he realized that his father had sent him for this specific task. And so he goes and he preaches in other synagogues. So in one 24-hour period, we've seen what a day in the life of Jesus was like. It was a day full of restoring and proclaiming that the king and thus the kingdom has come. It was a day of power and compassion, authority and care mixed together. It was a day in which Jesus was not clamoring for man's applause. 
For he was willing to leave that applause to continue his mission that his father gave him. And in this day and the one before it that we saw in Nazareth, we've seen many different responses to Jesus. The religious people in Nazareth, they rejected Jesus. They wanted to murder him. The demons confess who Jesus is and they obey him, but they have no delight in doing so. Simon's mother-in-law responds, though, with joyful service. And I think these passages are driving us to ask, which of those describes you? Are you one who wants to get rid of Jesus? Or one who, like the demons, know who he is and, yeah, I'll do what he says, but there's no delight in doing it? Or are you like Simon's mother-in-law, who not only knows and obeys because she has to, but she delights to serve the one who gave for her. You see, the demons recognize something important. That is, one day Jesus will come and bring condemnation. However, Jesus is not just a powerful authority to fear. He's also the caring and loving Savior who gave his life for the condemnation we deserve. So that rather than dreading, we can, as it says in Hebrews, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you joyfully come to the Savior? Don't delay. The King has come and He's offering grace and mercy now. But He will come again when it will only be judgment. Receive now His offer of mercy. Let's pray. O Lord, may we delight. May we delight in you. May we delight in what your Son has done. Lord, no other authority or power has ever walked this earth. May we joyfully submit to the one who loves and cares for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.